This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, today in 1941, at dawn, a carrier-based Japanese, carrier-based Japanese aircraft launched a sneak attack devastating the United States battle fleet at Pearl Harbor. A day later, the President of the United States at the time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, appeared before a joint session of Congress to ask for a declaration of war. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. I mentioned this yesterday because now a similar narrative has developed around Benjamin Netanyahu and the October 7th attacks, that there were always these theories that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt or other U.S. government officials had advanced knowledge of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. Ever since the Japanese attack, quite frankly, there's been debate as to why and how the United States was caught off guard in a lot of ways, very similar to what we're hearing with Israel now, and how much and when American officials knew of Japanese plans for the attack. September of 1944, John T. Flynn, who was co-founder of something called the America First Committee, launched a Pearl Harbor counter-narrative when he published a booklet titled The Truth About Pearl Harbor, arguing that FDR and his inner circle had been plotting to provoke the Japanese into an attack and thus provide a reason to enter the war. Several writers, including journalist Robert Stinnett, um, retired Navy Admiral Robert Alfred Theobald, and others, have argued that various parties high in the government and the UK, and our government and their government, knew of the attack in advance and may have even let it happen or encouraged it in order to ensure America's entry into World War II. So most people view the Pearl Harbor advanced knowledge theory as Fringe. That's been rejected by many historians. And indeed, there have been 
10 official U.S. government is, uh, inquiries, and none have found that um, the United States or high-level government officials had knowledge that this attack was going to happen. But there are still people that have bought into this for many years. In fact, I tried to reach out to most of the prominent writers that have said this and published about it and seem, you know, relatively certain of the evidence that they've gathered that point in this direction. Unfortunately, almost everyone, including the ones that I just mentioned, they're all dead. They're all dead. Most of the writers that subscribe to this are all dead. It is interesting. There was one other historian that I tried to get in contact with today by the name of George Nash. I was finally able to get uh, an email address for him, but he never got back to me about appearing on this show. At the time of this attack, the former president, Herbert Hoover, who had lost to FDR in um, 1932 and had kind of become an elder statesman and would go on for the rest of his life to be a very respected ex-president. In some ways, it was kind of like Jimmy Carter in that um, Herbert Hoover had a very poor reputation when he left office, but that reputation improved as he did a lot of things as an ex-president. Well, ex-president Herbert Hoover, who was a Republican, who was vanquished by Democrat FDR, said, we have only one job to do now, and that is to defeat Japan. That's what he said publicly. But to friends, he sent another message. He said, you and I know that this continuous putting pins in rattlesnakes finally got this country bit. So as we're, uh, you know, 70, uh, 80 years or more, 82 years after Pearl Harbor, it's interesting to look back at what Hoover noted because there was this remarkable secret history that was written from 1943 to 1963 by Herbert Hoover. And it was published and edited by the historian George Nash, which is why I invited him on the show. But it's Hoover's explanation of what happened before, during, and after World War II that, you know, are some similar issues to what we're dealing with today. So this book, Freedom Betrayed, Herbert Hoover's History of the Second World War and its Aftermath, it's available. You could buy it. It's a searing indictment of FDR and the men around him as politicians who lied about their desire to keep America out of war, even as they took one deliberate step after another to take us into war. So it has this 50-page um, run-up to the war in the Pacific. It uses memoirs and documents from all sides to make Hoover's case that essentially the United States provoked Japan into doing this. And it's Hoover's explanation of, you know, what happened here. And the best way to show the power of the book is the way Hoover does it, chronologically, painstakingly, week by week. And it gets into, in this book, Freedom Betrayed, Japan's situation in the summer of 1941, they were bogged down in a four-year war in China that uh, Japan was not going to win nor end. Having moved into French Indochina, Japan saw herself as near the end of her tether. So inside the government, 
the Japanese government, was a powerful faction led by Prime Minister Prince Fumimaro Konoye that desperately did not want a war with the United States. And the Anglo-Saxon camp included the Navy, whose officers had fought alongside the U.S., and royal navies in World War One. While the war, well, you know, the war was centered in the army, there were some anti-American sentiments within the Japanese party as well. There was sort of a war party in Japan. General Hideki Tojo, Foreign Minister Yosoki Matsuaka, very anti-American. And so, Konoye ousted Matsuaka, replacing him with. Admiral Toyota, T-O-Y-O-D-A, not quite like the car, but not too dissimilar. And the U.S. response, that was July 18th of 1941. The U.S. response on July 25th was the U.S. froze all Japanese assets in the United States, ending all exports and imports and denying Japan the oil upon which the whole country and the empire depended. So stunned, this prime minister still pursued his peace policy by winning secret support from the Navy and the Army to meet FDR on the U.S. side of the Pacific to hear and respond to U.S. demands. U.S. Ambassador Joseph Grew implored Washington, and this is all in this book, all chronicled by Hoover, Joseph Grew implored Washington not to ignore Kanoye's offer that the prince had convinced him an agreement could be reached on Japanese withdrawal from Indochina and from South and Central China. So out of fear of Mao's armies and Stalin's Russia, Japan wanted to hold a little bit of a buffer in North China. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of like the argument that we hear from Putin about why he didn't want Ukraine joining NATO. So on August 28th, Japan's ambassador in Washington presented FDR a personal letter from Konoye imploring him to meet. That's August 28th. Tokyo begged us to keep this offer secret because the revelation of a Japanese prime minister offering to cross the Pacific to talk to an American president could imperil his whole government. On September 3rd, that letter was leaked to the Herald Tribune. On September 6th, Konoye met again at a three-hour dinner with Ambassador Gru to tell him Japan now agreed with the four principles the Americans were demanding as the basis for peace. That's September 6th. No response. September 29th, Ambassador Gru sent what Hoover describes as a prayer to the president not to let this chance for peace pass by. September 30th, Gru writes to Washington, Kanoye's warship is ready, waiting to take him to Honolulu, Alaska, or any place designated by the president. No response. On October 16th, Kanoye's cabinet fell. In November, the U.S. intercepts two new offers from Tokyo, a plan, uh, a plan A for an end to the China war, and the occupation of Indochina, and if that were rejected, a plan B, where neither side would make any new move when presented, these two were rejected out of hand. November 25th, meeting of FDR's War Council, 
Secretary of War Henry Stimson notes, his notes that are in the book, speak of the prevailing consensus. A question was how we should maneuver them, the Japanese, into firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. Navy Secretary Frank Knox, we can wipe the Navy, the Japanese off the map in three months. That's what the Navy Secretary, Secretary Frank Knox wrote. As Ambassador Grew had predicted, Japan proved more likely to fling herself into national suicide for honor than to allow herself to be humiliated. And out of that war, out of the war that arose from the refusal to meet Prince Kanoye, came scores of thousands of U.S. dead, not only in Pearl Harbor, but, you know, for the, the whole Japanese theater. You had Hiroshima, you had Nagasaki, the fall of China to Mao Zedong, wars in Korea and Vietnam, and the rise of this new arrogant China that showed very little respect for the superpowers of yesterday. So if you are interested in the history, spend a week with this book. Again, uh, the book is called, and I'm sorry the uh, the editor of it never got back to me, George uh, George Nash. And if he gets back to me in the future, I'll invite him on again because it's an interesting book. Um, you can get it used on Amazon for $23. New, it's expensive. It's $46. It's called Freedom Betrayed, Herbert Hoover's Secret History of the Second World War and Its Aftermath. And there's always a lot of talk about provocation in, in conflicts, right? When... Um, Russia invaded Ukraine. So much of what we heard was, oh, uh, the Ukraine provoked Russia to do that. When uh, Hamas uh, attacked Israel, so much of what we heard was uh, that uh, Israel had provoked Hamas into doing that. I am curious if you buy, one, the theory that, quite frankly, I don't buy, that American officials actually knew about this world, this uh attack on Pearl Harbor before it happened and let it happen. I don't buy that. Or two, basically the case that Hoover lays out in this secret history that the United States provoked Japan. I have to be honest, I think there's some truth to it. I I also would love to hear your thoughts, especially anybody that lived through Pearl Harbor, September 11th, and October 7th, what you see as the uh, the similarities there between all those three incidents and what you see as the key differences. Obviously, I think there are many. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. <clears throat> and obviously, you're welcome to comment on uh, anything else that we've, that we've covered as well. It's only been an hour and 20 minutes into the show, but we've already covered... A great deal of ground. Uh, let me say hello to Robert in Suffolk. Hi, Robert. Hey, Frank. Um, I was uh, going to talk about the educational system and improvements that could be made. All right. Well, it's your dime, Robert. Say whatever you like. Okay. Thank you. Uh, one thing is schools need to be safe. There has to be things like access controls installed on the doors and for them to be locked with security systems and a armed security officer in the front so that schools, children and staff can, can remain safe instead of the current system where it's really haphazard as to what 
security protocols are in place so everyone can be safe inside the buildings. That's one thing. All right, well, um, another thing. Go ahead. Okay, would be standards. Standards have been lowered for teachers and children to pass the courses and for teachers to teach them. That's not good. You lower your standards, you're going to lower the outcome. You'll have a less favorable and ethical outcomes for the students. Yeah, well, I certainly, I certainly agree with that, Robert. You know, as far as your first point about safety in schools, um, needless to say, I certainly think we should have improved safety in public schools. I think that would be a great thing. I don't know if the decline in math scores internationally is due to uh, poor safety. I, I don't think that's the case. I, I just I just don't. I think we, we should have, poor, you know, important safety um, in place in every school because we want people to be safe. But I don't think that's the reason math, math scores are down, personally. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hi, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Um, I do agree with those people who believe that Roosevelt intentionally provoked the Japanese to attack. I don't believe they knew about the attack in advance because I think that's a bridge too far. But I think if you look at what was going on at the time with Lend-Lease to Great Britain, the United States clearly intended to get into the European war. And Hitler declared war on the United States after we declared war on Japan. Japan attacked us first. But who did we prioritize? When the war started, mm-hmm. we prioritized Germany, not Japan. We put Japan on the back burner, which is why it took until 1945 to defeat them. The other thing, which is important, and this is unfortunately uh, goes to some degree of racism, they didn't believe the Japanese were capable of executing such an attack as Pearl Harbor because they had beliefs that the Japanese – because of the, their eyes or whatever, were not capable of flying planes the same way as Americans. This type of arrogance, which I think I mentioned the other day when we were talking about Israel, when you believe that your opponent is not capable as you are, you're setting yourself up for the type of situation that happened in Israel recently and at what happened with Pearl Harbor. And, and if I could just say one last thing, please. Um, I did worry initially when we were sanctioning Russia that we were setting ourselves up for a similar situation uh, with Russia probably uh, possibly wanting to uh, do something to us because we've been strangling them economically. But I think that danger has receded, uh, and hopefully it stays that way because obviously the war machines available today are much worse than in 1941. Thank well, you. Well, you know, and thank you, David. I appreciate that. I agree with uh, a great deal of what David said there. Um, but, um, you know, I, I can't speak to the racism aspect of it, but I think there are a lot of similarities between October 7th, between September 11th and December 7th. I mean, uh, when we talked about yesterday, the fact that Israeli officials knew that Hamas was planning exactly this type of attack and they dismissed it. They dismissed it as essentially they didn't think they were capable of it. When American officials were warned that Al-Qaeda 
was planning not exactly the type of attack, but a similar type of attack. They didn't act. The 9-11 Commission dismissed it as a failure of uh, imagination. It seems like, I, I do think there's a strong case to be made that unlike Israel on October 7th and the United States on September 11th, whereas I think both those countries were caught with their pants down, basically. They ignored these warnings at their own peril. I think there's a strong case to be made that FDR provoked, not just FDR, but the American government provoked this attack. Now, it doesn't excuse Japan's conduct, not by a long shot, but I think it's worth considering. All right, we'll continue with your calls in a moment, uh, especially I know a bunch of folks want to talk about Colin Ferguson, Susan Charles Melvin. We'll get to you. Everybody that's holding will get to you. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose the much brighter there You can't forget all your troubles Forget all your cares So go downtown Things will be great When you're downtown No final place For sure downtown Everything's waiting For you Downtown If you um, ever like to know the music that we're playing on this program, you can uh, join our Facebook group. We post the songs there uh, each and every morning. Just go to uh, Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Hey, tonight is the first night of Hanukkah, or as I call it, Chanukah, uh, because I like to spell it with the CH. If uh, you are celebrating, I hope you have a delightful Hanukkah. Both my wife and I are are Christian, but my wife uh, is of Jewish uh, lineage. She never was a practicing Jew, but technically, if you go by, you know, that you consider what your mother is. So even though her mother was not a practicing Jew, the fact that she, her her mother was a Jewish person. It makes both of them Jewish. And, you know, according to the laws of Judaism, it makes Carmine Jewish as well. So we keep a uh, menorah in the house, and we do light it with each night of Hanukkah. My wife started this tradition, I think about two years ago, of each night of Hanukkah, she has a prominent Gentile light the menorah as we as we say the Hanukkah blessing. So uh, we're going to do that today. I think we have a Supreme Court justice, a New York State Supreme Court justice coming today, then tomorrow, maybe it'll be a city councilman, then the next day. You know, we do a different public official each day 
lighting the lighting the menorah, or it, it's not always a public official, but it's always a gentile, usually. Anyway, it's whoever we can get, quite frankly, that, as an excuse to come over and spend some time with us. All right, um, 800-848-9222. I've been negligent in getting to the phone calls. We're going to get to everybody. Bob is in Manhattan. What's on your mind, Bob? Well, the timeline you laid out is fabulous with Nash's book, but I don't know, does the book mention that the plan to take over the whole Far East was formulated in 1902. It was called the Tanaka Plan, and it was the Great East East Asia War. That's why they never apologized for the war. And uh, one of the primary targets originally was Kyoto, and they they didn't have the Joint Chiefs of Staff under the Council of Generals. And what they do is they try to block Stimson, but he was a personal friend of FDR's, so he bypassed him and went and said, you cannot bomb Kyoto because it's a religious capital. So that's when they changed it to one of the other cities. I don't know if Nagasaki or Hiroshima was the second choice. You know, that and, that scene of, um, you know, not going on uh, Kyoto, that is actually depicted in the film Oppenheimer. Did you see Oppenheimer? It was fabulous. Yeah, I so mean... Well I agree with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it again now that it's available on stream on streaming. Uh, but as for your question, no, I don't believe Nash's book does reference a plan going back as far as 1902. It uh, really covers, you know, the immediate aftermath and the immediate uh, the events immediately preceding World War II and Pearl Harbor. 800-848-9222. Melvin is in Indianapolis. Hi, Melvin. Hi, Frank. Uh, the story with uh, Colin uh, Ferguson. Uh, he was employed in Syosset, uh, New York, just next to Westbury. And uh, he worked for a company called, uh, uh, what the hell, uh, <laughs> I had a wrote it down here. Uh, they made alarm products. It was called a Demco, uh, which is the abbreviation for alarm device. They made uh, the controls for burger alarms like for uh, ADT or all these other companies. So he worked there. He had a, a had an injury, and he had a claim filed with, a, with his back injury, and the company challenged it. And I don't know if he was on medication or something, but he felt that they were people were against him. So when he did the shooting on the train, he waited until the train crossed out of New York City into Long Island, because Mayor Dinkin was a black mayor, and he didn't want to say that the shooting took place uh, on Mayor Dinkin's watch. You know, I, I've heard that. I was never sure, and i got to ask Kubi about that, because obviously he followed the case closely. I was never sure if that was confirmed or if that was kind of uh, an urban myth. But you can confirm that. Yeah, well, the reason I followed the case, the company Alarm Device, the owner that used to be before it became a, it was sold and then sold again. Now it's currently owned by the Honeywell Corporation. But the guy that started the company was the best man at my father's wedding oh, wow. before I was born. And they were very good friends. The guy's name was Morris Coleman. Uh, he, he's dead now, but he was uh, very close to my father. So I always, you know, I did business with that company for a while. All right. Well, I appreciate the insight there, Melvin. And, and, and now about uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, the the General Hirohito, I just saw a video, uh, a documentary on that about four weeks ago. Uh, I think he's Admiral Hirohito. Right. That, well, Emperor. That designed I think. the whole attack. Right. Sure. Well, guess what college he attended? 
what I, I give up. What? Harvard. Okay. Well, I, that that's something. So I, I just thought I'd mention that to you. All right. I'm, uh, I'm in Indianapolis. I love your show. I'm from Crown Heights, and I listen to ABC all the time. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Please uh, uh, keep us I, up. And I and I think your boss is terrific. Uh, see, I, I, I completely know, agree. His on wife that is from Indianapolis. Yeah, that's right, uh, Margot. She absolutely is from uh, Indiana, and uh, she is a great lady. So, yeah, I didn't know that um, Emperor Hirohito went to Harvard. I I, I got to double check that one. I'm going to double check that one, but uh, unless he's got uh, you know uh, him confused with someone else, with an, with with someone else that was involved in the planning that was not named Hirohito, but I'll look into that. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Oh, just a follow up on a, a subject that we covered that got a lot of attention. The, you remember the hockey player that died. And a lot of people called in talking about the need for neck guards. Well, now, following a death on the ice, the International Ice Hockey Federation announced that it's making neck guards mandatory for all levels of competition, including the Olympics and the Men's and Women's World Championship. And look, I I don't know anything about hockey, uh, let alone the safety protocols involved. But I, I, based on what everybody said, I think that is certainly good news. And I'm, it's just a shame that it took a death to bring us to this point. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Charles is in New Rochelle. Hi, Charles. Hi, good evening, Frank. Uh, fascinating show as usual. Thank you. Uh, just wanted to speak a little bit on Colin Ferguson. Actually, I was working in the press office of the New York City Transit Authority uh, about two weeks before December 7th when he called our office. His complaint was actually about the number three line coming out of Brooklyn, and he complained that it was it was actually it was it was fascinating to me because it was a racial complaint. He said that the number three service was poor because it served the black community. Uh, naturally, I said, well, I'll agree with you, number three service is poor. I said, but it goes through all communities in New York City. <laughs> it's not just a racial thing. And we had a conversation for about 20 minutes. where we just, And the first thing I really discovered about this guy is he was not an idiot. He was a very oh, intelligent, no. yeah. very well-educated gentleman. Uh, I spoke to him. Um, I put him on speakerphone. One of my coworkers, we both spoke to him on the phone. Um, he was very satisfied with the way we spoke to him. He said, thank you. He hung up. Uh, we found out that the next day he called up the president's office and spoke to the uh, assistant vice president of the Transit Authority, who also treated him very well. Uh, and it was a couple of weeks later that we uh, found out this was the same gentleman involved in the Long Island Railroad Massacre, and actually we were we were really shocked by it. And I had also heard that the reason he waited until the train crossed the border into Nassau County was he did not want to embarrass Mayor Dink. Right, I had heard that too. Again, it's one of those things that you hear, and, um, you know, like the Bernard Getz shooting, there was all this myth that, uh, that uh, occurred as a result of misinformation. I just didn't know if it was uh, confirmed. Well, that's interesting, and uh, it jives your impressions of him. It jived pretty well with what Mike Thompson said last hour. Hey, uh, Charles... Go ahead. Yes. Go ahead. What were we going to say? 
I was listening to Mike, and I'm full agreement with everything he said. Uh, Charles, how did you know and when did you realize that Colin Ferguson, the shooter, was the same person that you spoke to? I got a call from the Rail Control Center uh, who had heard about the conversation that we had, the president's office had had with him. And evidently they found out first who this gentleman was. And they said, do you know that this was the guy you were speaking to on the phone wow. a couple of weeks ago? And I was in shock. And a couple of days later, uh, Ellis Hennigan wrote about it in Newsday. Well, that's a wild story. Charles, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate the perspective. Thank you, Frank, for the show. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Oh, got to follow up on another issue that I've been talking about for three years you know 23 and me 23 and me which is one of these DNA testing websites now look I'll, I'll be honest I'm very curious what my DNA profile would show I mean uh, I'd love to know if I have biological relatives that are a fairly close relation that I you know that I never met you know because uh, you go back I'm you know my family's not been in this country on my mom's side very long at all a little longer on my dad's side. But um, I'm sure there are all sorts of cousins out there that I just have no idea about. I will not do this because I am very reluctant, especially after seeing what happened with that Golden State killer. I don't know what they're going to do with my DNA. I don't know if it's going to be sold. I don't know if it's going to be hacked. I don't know if it, you know, I don't know what's going on. And I don't want to incriminate any future generations of Moranos without the police doing their due diligence. So 23andMe, which is one of these major testing websites, they've confirmed that hackers accessed the personal information of, are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? 6.9 million people. 6.9 million people who uploaded their DNA to 23andMe because they wanted to find out if they were 80% Mediterranean or 10% Ashkenazi Jewish or if they had a uh, secret ant that they didn't know about. 6.9 million people now have their DNA in the hands of hackers. This is exactly what I was afraid of. While hackers initially breached 14,000 profiles, which is nothing in terms of the grand scheme of things. That's, I mean, it's something if you're one of the 14,000. That's one-tenth of one percent of the company's users. They breached this by using old passwords and usernames. That just served as an entry point for millions more. So this, to me, after seeing this story... I'm even more determined not to hand my DNA over to these strangers. 800-848-9222. Susan in Queens. Hi, Susan. Yes, hi. This is about Ferguson. My mother worked for the Workers' Compensation Board at the World Trade Center. And Ferguson had a case. He used to come in all the time. He was a real pain in the ass. And he came in many, many times to reopen his case. So finally, my mother said he was a West Indian guy. Finally, they offered him $15,000 to settle his case, a, a lump sum. He took it, and they said to him, look, this closes out your case. You're finished. He said, okay, fine. Naturally, when the money ran out, he came back, and he made a big deal. They said, look, guy, 
You're finished. The case is closed. We're not going to reopen it. You took the lump sum. Now, the supervisor was a black woman, and she explained this to him. Now, listen to this. When we found out that it was Ferguson, my mother and her colleagues, um, he waited. They think he waited for her when she came down the elevator from the 55th or 54th floor, and he watched her walk across the World Trade lobby to get the E train, okay? She would grab the E train and go up to 34th Street. Penn Station and get off. He probably followed her to see what train she would get. He knew what what her schedule was, her route. He was probably waiting for her on that train, and she wasn't there that day. He was looking for her. That's what the people in my mother's office thought. Are you there? Yeah, I'm listening to you. Oh, okay. He was walking up down in the aisle looking for somebody. I had heard read that in the papers, that he was walking up the aisle, up and down the train, back and forth, look, apparently looking for somebody. And, my, and everybody in my mother's office thought that he was looking for her. Well, okay? that's... Now, by the, way, by the way, this same woman had a lot of guts because a couple of years before that, a guy, a Polish guy had a case that he came in and he had a bomb. I don't know if you remember that. And so... He was going to, nobody was working on his case. He wasn't getting his money. So my mother's supervisor, that woman, she said, look, I'll go over and talk to him because I'm the head supervisor. She had a lot of guts because he had a bomb. So she says to him, look, I'll take personal care of your case. All right. If you get, you know, fork over the bomb. And he did. And it wasn't a bomb. It was a, uh, um, a hero sandwich. Mm. Okay. But my mother said at the time, that nobody said anything about her. They never mentioned her name, why he was on the train looking for somebody, and that was the reason why he was probably got very frustrated when he couldn't find her and he started going crazy. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank God that uh, your mother wasn't on the train if he was indeed looking for her. And no, that's my it. mother wasn't on the train. The supervisor wasn't on the train. Yeah. She either left well, late right. well, or she I didn't just, go I just said in. that. Yeah. And, and, but the, the one part of that that I don't know if it makes sense if he was looking for the supervisor or your mother yeah. is why, yeah. if he saw that they weren't on the train, would he just randomly shoot 25 other people? Why wouldn't he come back because the next day? Because he's a real day? pain in the ass. He was... The gentleman before said that he might have been on medication. He was hyper. Yeah. Okay? All right. Well, and I'm he glad... he might have been in his right mind. Well, I'm, I'm, thank you for sharing that story, Susan. Well, it clearly was not in his right mind. Anybody that's shooting uh, 25 people and who and would have kept shooting more people had he not been tackled by very brave passengers is absolutely not in their right mind. All right. Uh, let me share with you my football picks for the week. I was negligent a day... I was a day late in doing that last week. I am uh, I'm doing pretty well in my football pool. I'm either tied for I'm either tied for uh, third or second. It's uh, I'm see. There's one. No, there's I have 105 points, which puts me in second place because the pers the, the top score is 106 points. But there's two people, Chad and Bob Capano who works for our company, actually, who has 106 points. So if I have 105, does that make me second or third? I guess it makes me third because I'm the third one. All right, so um, so I, I got eight predictions right last week. And so I'm very much in the thick of it. I don't know what the prize is if I if I win at the at the end, but I'm only one shy of, uh, of the lead at, the, at this point. All right, 
So Thursday night, Pittsburgh is favored six and a half over New England. I'm going with the Steelers for evening shade and um, and Burt Reynolds. On uh, Sunday, uh, Cleveland is playing Jacksonville. I don't have a strong feeling either way here. I'll go with Cleveland because I've been to Cleveland. It's a very interesting town. Uh, Baltimore is playing the Rams. Absolutely going with Baltimore. Love the Ravens because of our listeners at WCBM. Detroit is playing the Bears. I am absolutely going with the Bears because of our great listeners at the Superstation AM 910. The Saints are playing the Panthers. I'm always against the Saints because I hate when people say who dat. So I'm going with the Panthers. The Colts are playing the Bengals. Eh. Uh, we had a nice caller, Melvin, from Indianapolis before, and he reminded me that our station's uh, first lady, Margot, is from Indiana. So I'll go with I'll go with the I'll go with the uh, the cults there. Atlanta is playing Tampa Bay. I have a neighbor and my friend Mike Levy that are both very big Tampa Bay fans. I'll go with Tampa Bay there. Uh, Houston is playing the Jets, and it's probably an exercise in futility because Houston's favored by six and a half. But uh, I'll go with the Jets. Uh, you have San Francisco uh, playing Seattle. I will go with San Francisco there. Uh, San Francisco heavily favored, and I think that's most people expect San Francisco to win big. Minneapolis is playing the Raiders. Very tough because I like both teams and I like both cities. But, look, Minnesota is the state that gave us Jesse Ventura, so I have to go with Minneapolis. The Chargers are, going, are against the Broncos. Chargers are favored by two and a half. I'll go with the Chargers. Chiefs versus the Bills, very tough because I like both of these teams too. I got to go with the uh, least politically correct team in this one, though, the Chiefs. Uh, Cowboys are playing the Eagles. I'll go with the Eagles because uh, my friend Anthony is a big Eagles fan, and uh, I am godfather to his daughter. And I think I um, I haven't yet gotten her a Christmas gift yet. So if uh, she is basking in her father's happiness over the Eagles, maybe she'll – she won't worry that my Christmas gift hasn't arrived yet. Uh, and Monday night, it's actually very rare. There's two games on Monday night. You have Miami, which is heavily favored over Tennessee by 13 and a half. I'm going with Tennessee because of our great affiliates there. And you have Green Bay that is favored over the Giants. I'll be a homer and go with the Giants. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls and talk Norman Lear. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing, join the Facebook group. Uh, just go on Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, we list the songs there each and every morning after the program. I'm going to get back to your calls in a moment. Three open lines. I did want to mention, you know, I came home yesterday, and it was uh, very interesting because um, my wife was kind of awake when I got home, which was unusual. Got home around 6... 30 or so, going to bed, and she sang how Prissy, that's our last remaining cat, was meowing all night. And me, she was meowing, and she went downstairs to keep her company, and uh, she, my wife just felt she was lonely, because we used to have three cats, two of them recently passed away, now we just have the one, so my wife, even though she wanted to sleep, at 11.30, midnight or so, she was downstairs, she's petting Prissy, and watching television and so forth. And Prissy was meowing, meowing up a storm, but she seemed to like when my wife was down there with her. And then same thing happens a a little later. My wife goes back to bed. Prissy is meowing and meowing and meowing. So then when my wife finally wakes up for the day, around 7 o'clock, she goes downstairs with Carmine, and she sees that the door to Prissy's litter box, which is in her office, was closed. So the reason she was meowing like crazy is because she had to do her business. And I don't even think she had an accident, which is pretty remarkable, at least not one that we've discovered. But she held it in for hours because we were at the uh, community board Christmas party. We had a babysitter. Carmine was probably running around. He was opening and closing doors, which he likes to do. And I guess one of the doors that he closed was the door to Prissy's litter box. So um, she was locked out of her own litter box. But she said when my wife went down with her, Prissy didn't kind of go over by the door and hang out by the door, which would have been a clue for her. She just sat there on the couch with her. So I think she was happy to have my uh, wife's company, but uh, we felt bad. And come to think of it, my wife asked me before I left, make sure you check that door and make sure it's not closed. And I forgot to do that. So now when I get home, that's the first thing I'm going to do is make sure I check that door. But I felt bad for uh, for Prissy. I uh, did feel good in that I was able to get a haircut for the first time in a while. I don't know what it is with my hair. My hair grows like a chia pet. It just grows out, out and upward. I mean, it really is. It really is something. And the um, so I finally got a haircut, and the the barber complimented me on my hair. I mean, what is he going to say when he's expecting a good Christmas tip, right? But he said, "Oh, I wish I had a head of hair like you." It, it always and he had all these explanations for why it's such a great head of hair. I wish it was a little less gray, but that's neither neither here nor there. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Alfredo is in Newark. Hello, Alfredo. Yes, Frank. How are you? Frank, uh, I didn't watch the movie Opel Helmet, but 
uh, I always wonder, Japan didn't know that uh, USA has a nuclear bomb. How, how can they take that chance? Well, I, I mean, I think they're, I don't know. I mean, I think they was there was a realization that multiple sides were trying to develop the atomic bomb, including the Germans. Uh, so I don't know what level of intelligence they had uh, prior to the, the bombing. I also don't know, uh, quite frankly, Alfredo, if there was an appreciation for exactly how devastating and how destructive the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and then Nagasaki actually was. I mean, it's one thing to hear the destruction described. Uh, You might think a country is bluffing or something along those lines. It's quite another thing to to see it firsthand and experience it. But Alfredo, I I have no idea, quite frankly. You know, it's a good question. 800-848-9222. Rich is on Staten Island. Hi, Rich. Hi, good morning, Frank. I just wanted to just point out it's amazing how there was always a an obsession with the Western culture from the uh, from the Japanese citizens. And uh, Babe Ruth actually toured Japan prior to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And, uh, you know, years later, Hirohito himself visited Disney and was actually a Disney fanatic. And there was a uh, there's some pictures of him like actually touring Disney, walking down with Snow White. And uh, it also is another thing to point out that the United States, there are haters of this country. That is a classic example of how the United States uh, helped rebuild the, their, uh, the defeated enemy. Germany, Japan, the Marshall Plan. It's a classic example of how uh, great this country actually is and humanitarian. I think that's a great point, Rich, and uh, I think a lot of other countries in the similar situation that the United States was in would not have behaved the the same way. I'm glad you mentioned that. Thank you, Rich. Talk a little bit about Pearl Harbor on uh, December 7th. We're going to talk Norman Lear in uh, just a bit. 800-848-9222 if you want to share your, I don't even want to say memories, but your analysis of what made Norman Lear and his programming so special. Be happy to hear from you. Jeff is in Brooklyn. Hi, Jeff. How are you, sir? Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, Listen, my uncle was out at Pearl Harbor. Uh, he He was involved in setting up the radar at Pearl Harbor. They saw the fleet coming for at least 48 hours, okay, and they were frantically calling, uh, you know, Washington with warning, serious warnings about this, this this fleet coming closer and closer. That's the first thing. The second thing is they sunk a Japanese mini-sub in Pearl Harbor uh, about 24 hours before the uh, attack. So the idea that they didn't know it was coming. So Come you on, think they guys. knew? You think American officials knew? Absolutely. Unless my, unless, unless everybody, all my, all my uncle, all his radar experts, all align, which okay. I don't, I don't believe. Jeff, thank you. Well, look, I can't compete with that kind of anecdotal observation, but there were ten official inquiries, and they came to the conclusion that they didn't know. I think they provoked. I don't think they knew. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.